You're listening to World of Empowerment Radio. Your station for practical spirituality in a changing world. And here are your hosts, Angel Rose and Ahanu. So welcome back. This is uh, the beginning of part two of our interview with Charles and the atomic bomb. So last segment we were taken on a journey through Charles's early childhood and his life and his entry into the Air Force and now we are going to continue hearing his stories about his life and how it was for him back then which will lead us up to again some serious questions about humanity itself, the human being, uh, the authority, how we you know take orders from authority figures and you know what's the deal with these two sides to our nature it seems you know we have this wonderful loving side that enjoys family and children and then we have this other side that goes and drops a bomb on 140,000 people so how does that work uh-huh? yeah so stay with us it's part very, two it's coming a very up. serious conversation we're having and uh, we do actually look for a holistic spiritual outcome to all of this. We are looking to that in section three, so stay with us as we go through this. So welcome back to our show today with Charles. As somebody sitting here listening, as a woman sitting here listening, I'm finding all of this extremely, extremely fascinating, actually. Well, so let's continue. It gets weirder. Yes. Okay, let's get into well, I mean, this. here at Garden yes. at Eleanor Rosa, here I've met Oppenheimer, and now yeah. it starts getting strange. Okay. Okay. Go for it. Okay, I hitchhike back to Pullman. I go to my uh, faculty advisor because as a student group, we need a faculty advisor. And I said, hey, Cynthia Schuster, I got to talk to Oppenheimer and I've invited him to come out and speak to my club. Ten people, students, <laughs> right, undergraduates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she said, oh, great. But, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to get uh, faculty approval of this. Okay. I never saw again. She was instantly fired for corrupting the youth. Oh, boy. Oh, so th was this part of this whole red communist type Absolutely. of attitude that was going to... Functionally, okay. I was personally fingered by uh, Joe McCarthy. I oh, was no. kicked out of ROTC. Right. Wow. Uh, oh, gosh. And a couple of weeks later, they let me back in. Oh, you did get back in? Yeah. Well. So you must have proven to them that you didn't have communist sympathies or something, did no, you? No, not really. Uh, uh, well, you don't have to go there, but... Yeah. yeah. But uh, So we, we want to try and stay on track with this. You, you were obviously over the moon in terms of your experiences. You just met Eleanor Roosevelt and Oppenheimer. Yeah. You almost got him to speak at your group in the university. Yeah. Then you got... Fired, or what do you call it? Uh, I, I said fingered, because that's you get fucked by Joe McCarthy. Right. Yeah. But then you got back in. Yeah. So, did they ever get him Oppenheimer to speak in no. university? It never happened. No. Okay. So where, would where, he have agreed to come? I don't know. Okay. Right. Uh, but. So pick it up from there. It's a move point, I suppose. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. Okay. So anyway, um, things go on. Uh, Few months later, I was in the United States Air Force as a cadet pilot. Okay. It wasn't that, that long. And I didn't, but I should have written a letter to Eleanor Roosevelt thanking her for all the stuff that she had done for her, and another one to Oppenheimer, which I didn't do. I 
It's because I was young and stupid, but I should have. Do you mean that they were somehow instrumental in getting you into the Air Force? Is that what you mean? No, uh, but they were, they were exceedingly kind to me in my relationship with them. Okay, you know, just, so just, you just felt grateful in general? Yeah, Okay. sure. So then uh, I go in the Air Force, and uh, it was kind of strange. About hmm, four weeks in, into flight school, uh, I was asked if I'd like to go to the Air Force Academy. Okay. Because it was just opening. So I would have been in the first class, the automatic trail to becoming a general or, you know. Okay. Because uh, that's what it's all about. Oh, yeah. And and I thought about it for not very long. And then uh, I decided not to. I said, no, I'm a pilot. I'm having a really good time flying. I'm doing well at it. You know, it's going to be smooth sailing which it turned out to be for me, mm. not for a lot of my friends, uh, because uh, in some ways I, I, I screwed up a lot of other people's careers because I... I, I tell us about that. Now, you, you did tell me about that before, yeah, yeah. And, and I was quite stunned by how that... So explain to our listeners what that was about. It, it was six months in, I, I had transitioned into T-33s, uh, 5,000 horse, uh, uh, thrust, jet, powerful jet plane. It was an early uh, Air Force jet plane. Anyway, that's what I was doing. And a strange thing happened uh, about three weeks into jet school. Uh, we had been taking uh, a class in high altitude bodily adaptation, because, you know, if you're going to be flying around up in the sky, you should have some idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. Well, our instructors had been some physicists from Princeton or someplace, or Cal, and they, they were the ones that wrote the exam. Well, for me, that kind of thing is just duck soup, the yeah. kind of thing I like. For yeah. all these other guys, they don't approach things the way physicists do. Okay. And I, I got 50 out of 50 questions, right. The next best guy out of 100 guys got about 40. And literally a quarter of the guys didn't get a random score on so the test. So you aced it right off yes. the bat. Okay, and yes. these other guys didn't. Okay, now the way the Air Force had it set up at that time, you draw a bell-shaped curve, you tack the top of it on the highest guy and the bottom of it on the lowest guy, and you draw a bell-shaped curve over it. Half the guys failed. Oh, dear. Wow. Now, you only get to fail because twice, you so good. and you're Because out. you were so good, they failed. It exactly. wasn't because they weren't good at what they did. They were just average Air Force pilots. Okay. But I had aced it. So, so they got so half, Literally, they half of the guys failed the exam. Right. So here I am with 50 guys that I'm surrounded by. Unbeknownst to me, I would have happily gotten 40 right yes. <laughs> instead of 50. Yeah. But because of that, everybody hated me. Right. And because of that, even though I, I scored tops on everything, flying ability and on the other things they were grading us on, mm -hmm. I got the bottom on officer effectiveness because everybody hated me. Okay. Although I got along well with everybody, but, yeah. but all the same. They blamed you for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I didn't get my original assignment. I wanted to go to fighters. I didn't get it. I went to the bottom of the pile. And that was, uh, they had a bunch of assignments for B-47, so here I find myself in B-47s. Okay. okay, well, that's still fine. You're flying a fancy modern airplane around. 
But now we're coming back in a sense full circle because these the B, bomb. B-47s were flying that bomb. They were exclusively made to drop atomic bombs. They, right. were, they never dropped a bomb in anger because, you know, you carry, you don't want to fly a million dollar airplane around to drop a couple of 500 pound bombs. Yes, yeah, you know, right. And risk it even. So continue from there because this, this, is, this is crucial now. Yeah. So anyway, here, here I am with all these guys. I get shunted over into B-47s. Um, I, I had, there had been a, about a six-week period where I'd gone to survival school, and I did extremely well there, too, and ended up with everybody hating me, once again, because I got some good, good score on all the exams, and a bunch of my compatriots got, got screwed because of it. I, I did not know it. Truly, I did not know it, or I would have yes. modified my behavior because it didn't matter for me. Sure. Anyway, so I, I get there and take the uh, basic flying instruction for the B-47, and then there comes the day when, there it is, here's going to be your bomb, your, in this case, I think I can say this now, the name of the bomb, maybe I shouldn't. But it was uh, in the megaton range. Now, megaton so they, means a thousand times bigger than a kilo. Now, you spoke of these bombs being like right. 10 kilo. This is a thousand times bigger. And you had to carry it on your plane. That would, I said no. No, but wait a second. They actually named the bomb. They, they gave it a name, right? I don't know. No, no, what are you talking about? This, this, we had 30,000 of these things. Oh, the I see. I'm sorry. But, but they, they gave it to you. In other words, you were responsible for this bomb. There, yes, there comes a time when you... When you just, signed off. It's just a form and you sign off and three or four other people sign off that you've now got this bomb and you fly around with it for a while. And you fly around basically around the North Pole up there someplace and if a little red light comes on, you push a button and get it in code, you open a door, you look at the... Oh, I'll go bomb Moscow or Washington, D.C. or Bend, Oregon or, you know, wherever. Oh. So, so that's how close all this now is to raw reality for you. Yeah, but I, I had foresight to where I was looking. And I'm saying, I don't want to go out and kill a million people. Yeah. Or maybe half a dozen other cities with a million people. Because if you're flying long and nobody's coming up to shoot you down, that's yeah. what's going to happen. Now, here's a, here's a curious thing that most people are not aware. Remember the Enola Gay and the boxcar they were flying over? Yeah. That wasn't their first target. They, there was, they were flying around over the top of Japan there for an hour or so before they dropped their bomb. In other words, the Japanese did not have enough power to fly an airplane up there and shoot, shoot them at them. Well, even shoot at them. Right. To do anything. They yeah. didn't even bother because they couldn't. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and then they get an atomic bomb drop. That's how supine Japanese were at that time. Now, the other thing that comes to my mind right now, too, is in terms of the scale of these things, because you mentioned about that being a 10 kiloton bomb. And 10 kiloton, now you're talking about megatons. Yes. So the scale uh, of the destruction in Hiroshima was 170,000 people. But you're talking now about millions potentially being wiped out with one of these things. Even worse than that, because if you're setting them off, inevitably some others will get set off and it would be essentially the whole planet. And here's you flying one of these things. I never flew it. Oh, tell us, come on. Uh, it came to that point 
here I am in a room filled with these bombs, and I, I was just kind of looking around and thinking about it, and thought, well, what we'll, we'll could it? We'll, yeah, and I just started thinking into the future and thinking, you know, well, if this is going to make a career for 20 years, and what's the chance of it happening? Well, I don't know, maybe 10%, maybe maybe 5% per year times 20 years. Uh-oh, that's like 100%. Right. It, it was inevitably going to be dropped yeah. at some point. It seems like it. But here's, here's the situation. Well, I got out voluntarily. I resigned seven times. They let me out the last time. Uh, so, so hang on. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut across you, but like, this is crucial. So your conscience really was was getting the better of you at this point in time. You, you didn't even fly the first time when you were asked to carry this bomb. That's right. You said no. That's right. But they didn't let discharge you at that point. Like I, I resigned seven times, like I said. But I would have thought that they would have... They don't you let know, you out easily. No, I know, but I, I thought they would have discharged you for dishonorary behavior or something. I, 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 I made it very clear to them. I, I'm fully in favor of defending my country. I'm not going to contest that. I mean, anything you tell me to do, I have done and will do, but I don't want to do this. Wow, I make it perfectly clear to you, I absolutely do not want to do this. And they said, well, you know, if you're not going to do it, we're going to put you in jail for 10 years. And I said, well, that's that's my level of commitment then, I guess. So you were prepared to go to jail? Yeah. Rather than so how did you not go to jail? Well... Because he knew Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> you know what? They knew that. They did? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this gets us into all the, you Gosh. know, all this elite stuff, which we'll pass over today. But anyway, yeah. you know, who yeah, knows yeah. who. And yeah, yeah. So, so they, they really didn't press charges. No, eventually, uh, I was... It was about six weeks, I don't remember the exact time, four to six weeks in that time range. I found myself standing in front of the base commander, and this guy was a World War II bomber pilot, and yeah. he loathed me. Yeah. He hated me. <laughs> and the, he made it perfectly clear, you know, that I was some kind of infinite coward. Mm -hmm. We're not doing it. Kind of, kind of, it's kind of the other way around. Yeah, right. You know, that's what I was going it to is. say. That it takes a actually, lot of courage to say no. There's, that's what I was going to say. I mean, to me, to my mind, you were displaying an enormous amount of conscience and courage to refuse that. But at the same time, you know, what we have to realize, of course, is the next man in line is going to step up and say, yes, sir, I'll do that. No problem. I know that. You know. I know. But at least it wasn't him. One of, one of the weird things that happened, this was only a couple of days before I was actually out of there. I was in my BLQ bachelor officer quarter, just a room about like this, my bed. And I had all my stuff prepared for my trip around the world because I was going to go on a trip around the world on a motorcycle uh, trying to convince people that this atomic bomb was a bad idea as a 23-year-old. You had really turned against it at that point. Well, it's just as a bad idea. It's a stupid, It's still stupid, a bad idea. Stupid, it's a stupid, stupid idea, and I want to do everything I could to turn it around. Yes. Anyway, so here I am, knock, knock, knock at the door, and two guys, I barely knew them, uh, were at the door. Uh, they weren't even in my class, but I recognized them. And uh, they came in and started saying, hey, I heard you're trying to get out, you know. Uh, I think that's really stupid, you know, I'm a patriot, and I, I think you're an asshole and a shithead. 
Because you're trying to get out of the service. Yeah, and, uh, and, and that's kind of going like that. And so amongst the pile of gear that I had that I was going to put on my motorcycle, I purchased a machete that was in a, in a thing. Because when, <laughs> when I go camping, I will go out and clear an area for me to do it. And the machete seemed like the quickest, the easiest way to do sure. that. Yeah. So the guy pulls his machete out, he's standing there talking to me like this. He's holding the machete? Yeah. And oh talking to me like I'm a, oh <laughs> a deserter. A deserter, big pile of shit. Yeah. And then he and then he said to me, he said, you know, you don't want to drop the bomb on? I want to. I think it would make my day. And he walks out. I had a big map of the world right there. And he takes a machete and he goes like this. <laughs> makes a big X in it. And it in the map. On Over the, map. the world? Over yeah, on the world. Out of the and, it, and it just kind of flops out. Oh, like my God. And I guess they thought that was enough. And then they... Laid the machete down and he walked out. That was, that was about two, three days before I was out. Do you know what? You know, that re does remind me, though, of my, my <laughs> own brother had joined the Navy when yeah. he was 20. Yeah. And they stationed him in Guam on a nuclear submarine. Right. And when yeah. he learned what that did, he asked for a transfer. He asked for every everything he could to get off, and they would not let him off. Yeah. And, you know, and that's when he died a few months later in a car crash. Oh, dear. Interestingly. I don't know. It may be that because of my behavior, they changed the rules a little bit on us. Mm -hmm. Now, fortunately for me, I was right between the wars. The Korean War was pretty much dead and gone, mm -hmm. and the Vietnam War hadn't started. This was, a, 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 I don't remember the exact time of year, a year and a half, mm -hmm. before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. When the Cuban Missile Crisis all of my buddies would have been sitting in those B-47s on the end of the runway, maybe five of them with the engines running. Yes. Another 20 of them lined up with the guy sitting in them, but the engine's not running. Yeah. And all, all 20, 30 of them, maybe 200 B-47s could have been in the air in 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah. And they so were that's loaded. How, that's, yeah, loaded. Loaded. And uh, there was a line drawn in the water out there somewhere. And the Russians were sailing the ship to it, and they had already decided if they cross that line, we'll go. Jeez, and the Russians close. didn't know where it was. Wow, that's how close things were. Yeah, that's what it's You saying. know, I don't think very, very few people, I would say, in the world have any idea well, of the potential destruction that, that, that that's, if the bomb is capable of, or how close that we've got to it. Yeah, yeah, well... Uh, as far as I know, I'm the only person that actually left Berkeley that couple of days. I went up north to Clear Lake, which is about 100 miles north. And I just thought, well, I'll probably get killed here yet, too. But at least I get to watch the big V end. Yeah. My, uh, my, my employer at that time, Lawson Jones, he said, if the war comes, I want to be right under the first bomb. That's what his attitude Yeah, because is. you don't want to suffer as a result of... You know, radiation poisoning or anything All like that. that. Yeah. But to my way of seeing it, I, I wanted to wanted to see how it all worked out. I still feel that way. That's part of the reason I didn't bend. Well, now, listen. Here. So let's, let's switch it over now to the other side. I'm not quite done here. What well, happens when I get to Berkeley? Hang on a second. <laughs> it happens from time to time when we do an interview with people that, you know, the subject matter is so intriguing and so 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 gripping that we do have to extend it to a third segment and in this case we are going to have to do that so we do need to take a quick little studio break do stay with us 
we will be back after this and Angie Rose will remind you who we're speaking to and what we're getting into here. So we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Angel Rosa Grady, and I'm here to talk to you tonight about the work that I've done for the past 20 years being a reader of the Akashic Records, predominantly. I've evolved to this work through many years of meditation and uh, being taken to other worlds and found that we all have a library in spirit that contains our soul's journey through all of our lifetimes on this planet and others. Through my work, I enjoy helping other people find their soul purpose, look at their spirit, help them through their challenges, understand their relationships, and guide them to fulfill their highest soul purpose. I've written two books on this subject. One's called A Time of Change, and those were predominantly group sessions that we did when people had bigger spiritual questions for the problems in their lives, such as, uh, what about the financial collapse? What about uh, 2012? What about healing? What happens when people commit suicide? Things like this that became the basis for uh, group sessions that began in 2009 and continue to this day. The first book, A Time of Change, deals with questions that happened before 2012 and some leading into what would happen after. And the second book, The Nature of Reality, deals with questions people asked about consciousness, what is God, what's the origin of creation, what, is it, what about time and dimensions, what about dreams, why do we dream, and love and miracles and topics such as that. I'm also a personal Akashic Record consultant, and I'm also a business consultant through the Akashic Records. I feel these ways of going into the records and helping people in their personal lives and in their business adds an extra, extra sacred dimension to their life here. If you're interested in seeing more about my work, you can go to angalrose.com or worldofempowerment.com. Thank you. You're very welcome back. My name is Ahanu and with me is Angel Rose and we're speaking with our good friend Charles Scammerhorn who is bringing us on a wild ride of the Second World War and the development of the atomic bomb and how he actually refused to carry it in his airplane and the repercussions from that. And you know I have to say that I am absolutely full of admiration for this man because I believe that if the world had more men like you, Charles, this, the world would be a more peaceful place. I have to say, I, I am in awe of you, just like you were in awe of Oppenheimer. And Gilroth, I know you do want to say a couple of words quick before we get back to Charles again. I do. Um, you know, but I also find it interesting how he can meet some another person, though, who's just gone home about dropping it and really wish the whole world would just be blown up. So I, I think that's the point of the world is that you do have people who are carrying so many different poles of consciousness and um, you know to the 
to me, to the sane person, the whole idea of dropping a bomb of that magnitude and killing so many people is is beyond insanity. It's just insanity. However, it? you do have equally amount who think, well, you know, they're, they're just little peons, and then let's get rid of them. They're they're eating our resources. They're taking our money. We have to feed them all. Yes. You know, let's just do away with them all. Yeah. So I will be interested to see uh, how all of this in Charles's mind turns around for him spiritually, but I also want to remind us, let us not forget to point people to Charles's blog. Yes, now let, let me spend a moment before you go back to the story, Charles, honestly, because I have to say, and, and again, I want to be saying this with the utmost respect for your age, right? And I don't mean to be disrespectful when I say, it. it's few enough people of his age who even know what a blog is, let alone to run one for the last 10 or 12 years. And Charles Scammerhorn is one such man. He writes a blog every day, practically. And it Not is... Not practically, every day. Every day. <laughs> well, it is one, I have to tell you, and go there, and I'm going to put the link below this video and below this podcast. I say go there because it is full of the gems of wisdom of this man's life. And not only that, but because of the fact that he is almost 81, that it is all the more intriguing. There is a lifetime of gems of wisdom in this blog. And it's one that I would highly recommend. And as I said, the link is going to be here for you. And I'm glad you brought that up, Angel Rose. So, okay. There's a couple of things we got to jump over here that we went by. I mentioned I was in, before I was in B-47 flight school, that I went to six weeks of Air Force Survival School uh, instead of Air Force Base Reno. Anyway, while I was there, I spent three days in a hole in the ground in, uh, this, uh, in a prisoner of war camp setting with uh, a guy who was in charge of the Cheyenne Mountain, the big mountain with the big board you see in Dr. Strangelove and all those things. The guy that actually, the president probably doesn't actually push the final button. This guy does. And you were in it a might only be five seconds later, but that's the You guy. were in a bunker with him? Yeah. Now explain to us what happens. Well, uh, actually not much. I mean, he couldn't talk about it much, but he was the guy. And it, this was, uh, let's say, six weeks before my whole epiphany with the hydrogen bomb. And here I am with this guy, and I'm just as smart as he is, and just as moral as he is. And in fact, I'm smarter than he is, because in the three days, I don't know if he ate a meal, and I never missed a meal. He slept on the rocks, and I slept in a sleeping bag. Okay. What was the logic behind that? Explain. Because I was smart enough to see what was happening, managed to get on the detail to go out and collect wood, and while collecting wood, managed to get a bunch of big, heavy pieces of tar paper, not tar, but paper that was used for insulation, and make a bed out of it. So it was quite comfortable. And I realized it was going, so I escaped from the prisoner work camp and got a bunch of food. Okay. Duh. Why not? Okay. And then in, in addition to that, I, my big mistake in all that, I made a big mistake. I was out of the prison camp. I didn't have to be back till 8 in the morning. I knew that Sandy Davis Jr. was downtown uh, at Reno. I should have gone down there because I, I, I hadn't seen him once. this couple of days before. I could have gone on there with my prisoner outfit on. Mm -hmm. And I could have come up and got on stage with him, probably. And since he had... Uh, the former Miss America as his 
stagehand, I could ask, hey, do you mind if I give Miss America a big hug? <laughs> oh, I see where your mind was going. He always thinks that things Forevermore. <laughs> no, this one was, I actually thought about this and said, I'm not supposed to go off base. I better not go off base. Anyway, I thought about this, but I'm thinking forevermore, all these guys that have gone through survival schools yes. would be thinking, and there was Chuck up there making out with Miss America. I know. Well, that would be a good story to tell. Unfortunately, we don't have that story to well, tell you today, but it was a close call. It was a close call. Yeah. However, it, it gets closer. So I ended up going to Berkeley afterwards. I, I traveled around on my motorcycle for a while, realized nobody gave a damn. Or they all felt like, well, I can't do anything. So my first girlfriend, when I went back there in Berkeley, uh, Ellen Fithian Jones, maybe I shouldn't mention that. Anyway, you already um, did. Too late. <laughs> Ella, yeah, she was a beautiful girl, and I really, really liked her. And uh, we went down to for Christmas that Christmas to her father's house. Well, it turns out that her father was base commander of Andrews Air Force Base at Washington D.C. Oh, okay, that's the place where you. Did all your well, no, I was never there, but you know, he was the guy that was in charge of a lot of okay B-52s at the highest possible level. Actually, I got along with him just fine, but but that was kind of strange, wasn't it? Now, why did she pick me out of all the guys in Berkeley? Yeah. Anyway, so that happened. Not, I don't know just how long this. This would be about a year, two years later. My, my girlfriend and fiancé, briefly, fiancé only in the sense that I asked her to marry me, but she never said yes. Okay. But that's where, and we were living together. Okay. Anyway, her father uh, was uh, uh, Burris Cunningham. Doesn't mean anything to you. But he's the guy who is the nanochemist that there's a picture of him online looking at the very first speck of plutonium. There's, and, and he's talking about it a little bit. You can go online and see it. Really? And uh, he was the guy that was able to do the nanochemistry on that microscopic speck of plutonium and show that, yes, they could, they could do the refinements necessary that, Hanford, uh, that the Hanford Project could go ahead and make sense. Oh my gosh. Now, this is back in late 41, early 42. So your, your life from what I'm seeing, has been at the edge of this kind of... Yeah. I lived across the street from the reactors. You know, I was in the hole in the ground with the guy that did it. The final push on the button. I, I knew Oppenheimer, who designed it. I met Eleanor Roosevelt, whose husband authorized it. Yes, yes. Now, let so me what ask does all this mean? Yeah, I was going to ask the same yeah. question. Here's, 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 here's yeah. the final point yeah. on it all. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the thing that disturbs me to my core to this day. Yeah. Some of the nicest, sanest, most wonderful people I have ever met are the ones that made these weapons. Do you mean on the surface level of them? You know that they no, seem to be No, I mean at the sane? core. I think. So I don't know. So I knew them. The they were really either. nice people. Yeah, but how could how could you totally be really nice, Charles, and be making something exactly like that? Exactly. I mean, Do you mean that, that there was some hidden agenda? Do you, I, I mean unconscious agenda in their minds, do you think? I, I No, I don't think so. Were they being controlled in some way? No. No, they, they were, they were paid just... Paid well. <laughs> they were paid well. The, the scientists were just 
doing their science, you know, yes. it's their job. Did they themselves have any idea of the destruction capability of it? Well, uh, and if they of, did, would they have continued? Uh, at the end of uh, when the, when Germany surrendered, uh, there uh, um, there was apparently amongst the atomic scientists a lot of question of whether they should proceed. Right. Uh, and I think out of the thousand or so major scientists that were working on it, only a, a couple of them backed out. Okay. Very few of them. Okay. So, so what? So what is the? Because it's, it still goes on today. I mean, yeah. you still have the madman in the background, just trying to come up with more and more sophisticated ways to kill off everybody. Yeah. So, in your observation, Charlie, do you have an opinion about what is that? What is that good versus evil energy? Do you have any thoughts about it? Because in my mind, I view it as total insanity. <sighs> okay, for people who actually agree to do such things. There's so much good in the best of us. No, there's so much bad in the best of us, and so much good in the worst of us, that it behooves the rest of us not to say anything about any of us. That's, I think Mark Twain said yeah, something yeah. like that. Makes sense, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, tell us this about you, and this is just a personal question to you. Seeing that you've lived your life so close to all of this, you know, you're intimately connected your, wove, your life is woven into this, the atomic bomb, effectively. What does that mean to you? Like, do you understand my question? Why do you think you played the role you have done? What, what's your life about seeing that, that weaving into the development of nuclear fission? But what's that about for you? For me, uh, I'm just the person here trying to... Uh look at the problems and behave the best I can. Maybe like everybody else on that issue, and I just maybe look a little further down the road, that's all. Hmm. The other day in, uh, was it Tuesday? We were talking about the, the crumbs. People were, were just going from one crumb to the other crumb. Right. We, we talked about that for like an hour, kind of the yes. back and forth. People, uh, each each epiphany, each enlightenment was just like a crumb, and, and enlightenment wasn't a fixed thing you reached. It was like a series of things, each time getting a little, maybe a little better or a little something, but but it was a series of things. And I was thinking, I, I remember saying it. I thought it was kind of funny, and everybody was shocked. I said, you know, I've led a really crummy life. <laughs> yeah, but that was a reference yeah. to the crumbs that you yeah. I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. People realize that I think yeah. <laughs> afterwards, because yeah. yeah. I remember a gasp went up when I said that. But yeah, we might let it. But from what you've just told us today, you have not uh, led a crummy life by any means. Indeed, mm -hmm. it's been an absolute remarkable one. And I, I and I know Angel Rose feel very privileged to have had this opportunity to talk to Charles Gammerhorn about this. We are going to put the links below this video. We're going to put below mm -hmm. the podcast, and we want to express our gratitude yeah. to you for listening and coming along with us. But for you, Charles, for being so open and frank and honest, and, and, and I know that you have held back from being emotional about this because it's a very touching subject for you, and we're very, very grateful for having the opportunity to, to talk to you about it. Well, I assure you, we just scratched the surface here. Yeah, we're going to have to do yeah. a be, to be continued. Well, we are. Part we are. two. Okay, thank you so much. We will be back again shortly. <laughs> Namaste. Bye.
You have been listening to Angel Rose and Ahanu on World of Empowerment Radio, your station for practical spirituality in a changing world.